Father, I pray once again that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I don't know if you have been through the experience of moving, but I suspect most of us have. It can be a, an exciting venture, and it can be a frightening venture. Part of it depends on whether you use a U-Haul or you hire someone to do all the work, but that's a, another thing we'll get into another day. I've, I've been through uh, a few moves in my life, and every one of them was a move that I didn't really want to make necessarily especially when I was a child. You know, when you're a child, you have your friends, you have life is what it is, you like it, everything's good, and to uproot all of that and to go someplace that's unknown and you have to start all that all over again is frightening and stressful. Moving is always stressful. Even if you're excited about it, there's a level of stress in it. The only move as a child, I, my, the very first move that our family made when I was a child, I have no recollection of because I was not quite one year old. I can't remember that far back. And so for me, it was not stressful. It was simply a matter of as long as my parents were going, I was going with them. That was, would have been my biggest concern as, a, as an infant. But for my parents, it was stressful. And I suspect there's something of that in the story we read this morning. This move to Egypt really has, it's really no stress for the baby Jesus. But for Joseph and Mary, it's a whole nother thing. And for them, it's not just, well, I've got a new job or something exciting is ahead of us. It's we got to run for our lives. And there's something about, as Matthew tells this story, there is something about the move that revolves around this prophecy from Hosea. And the prophecy from Hosea is triggered by a dream that Joseph has. I always wonder how Joseph feels about this dream. Joseph seems to be very sensitive to dreams, probably a lot more than we are. People, it seems like in the ancient world, people were much more apt to think more about their dreams than we might tend to be. But here, jo Joseph has a dream. An angel appears to him and says, get up and go. I suspect there's mixed feelings for Joseph. On the one hand, this is, this is a, a, a command that's taking him further away from his home. Well, on the other hand, it's saving their lives. It's protection. And, and Joseph goes now, it's not something unknown. Uh, throughout history, there have been many, many instances and there are many times when Jewish people have fled to Egypt. In fact, at the time that Joseph and Mary would have gone south to Egypt, more than likely, every community in Egypt had a Jewish population, and the, the city of Alexandria, is estimated, had maybe over a million Jews. It was, so they were, they were going to someplace familiar even if it was the unknown. There's something about this, this journey that can, would connect a Jewish mind back to the book of Genesis. If you remember back in the book of Genesis, uh, Jacob and his 12 sons live in what was, what was then become the land of Canaan. 
and there's a famine in the land, and they, they end up going to Egypt to get food, and Joseph has gone ahead of them through a series of circumstances. And eventually, Jacob and his whole family moves to Egypt. And, it, and for both Joseph with Jesus and Jacob with his family, this move is not a choice they make. It's really life or death. And even though they are going to a place that is welcoming them, it's still the unknown. There is something about the unknown that has a tendency to, at the very least, bring stress to us and anxiety to us, if not fear for us. That's the kind of thing that happens in a broken world. And in a broken world, people who have power can also command that little innocent children be murdered. It's a tragic part of this story that Herod is so angry, so upset that he orders these young boys, these little children in Bethlehem killed. It's a reminder to us that Jesus enters a world that is so corrupt, that's been so twisted from the way God created it, that he's not welcomed. The one who's coming to redeem them is not welcomed. He's, and he's not just opposed. They seek to take his life and to crush everything he does and to crush him himself. He enters into a world in which the powerful view the vulnerable as disposable. And let's be honest, our world hasn't progressed all that far from that. We still live in a world in which the vulnerable are often viewed as disposable. And sometimes we can get so caught up in ourselves, we miss that. We can get so caught up in our politics, we miss that. We can get so caught up in, in gaining things, we miss that. I'm convinced that this incident in, of the boys in Bethlehem breaks God's heart and it grieves him deeply that this is where the world has come to. It grieves God that his wonderful, loved creation has so turned from him that we choose self and violence and hatred and power and even evil instead of love and compassion and grace and mercy as he intended the world and as he created the world. Satan celebrates this. He's the initiator of this. Satan wants to destroy everything that God loves. But I think particularly children. I think it is Satan's passion to harm children every way he can. Because to harm children is to mess with them for the rest of their lives. 
to harm the vulnerable, is to cause them to, to have a skewed view of who God is. As Jamie was saying to us a few moments ago, do we believe that we all matter? How do we believe that? Somehow we see it. Somehow we experience it. And the evil one's passion is to prevent that from happening. And we live in a world in, that is continually trying to destroy the vulnerable. And that's why it's so important as the church, as God's people, to do everything we can to protect the vulnerable, to be a voice for the voiceless, to be a presence for those who have no presence, to do everything we can to be the image bearers of God, to communicate his great love for people who live in a world in which everyone tells them they're unloved, uncared for, insignificant, disposable. I, you know, it may bother us when we read this story. We want to think that a lot of it bothers us, but one of the things we, want, we ask ourselves is, shouldn't the birth of Jesus have eliminated this? Eventually it does. But like, the, like John's word in, about the road in the wilderness, our calling is not to eliminate the wilderness. That's God's business to eventually do. Our calling is to be his presence in the midst of the wilderness and to be his presence in the midst of the evil. Many of you probably, if you grew up in the church, you probably experienced the, the joy of flannel graph. I mean, when I was a child, that was sort of high tech for us. It was flannel graph, right? And so you, and, and you know, I've discovered flannel graph is kind of making a, a comeback. You know, even as Ann was talking about the library. And by the way, I was thinking that, you know, I was going to say, you know, it's your generosity that helps to fund the library. But it seems to me, actually, it's Ann's uh, negligence that's funding our library. But that's a whole thing we'll get into later. But, you know, but the flannel graph is actually making a comeback is something we can touch and feel is so important. And we're missing that with all the devices we have. But I was reading about someone uh, who grew up in flannel graph in Sunday school and everybody would always fight over who got to hand the teacher the little characters that they put on the flannel graph to tell the stories. And man, if I close my eyes, I can remember that so clearly, see that so clearly. And he was saying one day, this, this guy and, his, and a little, another little boy were fighting over who was going to get to hand the Apostle Paul to the teacher. And they got into it so much that they tore off the Apostle Paul's head. <laughs> and he said, the teacher was amazing. She just picked it up and she taped it back on and put it back on there. And he said, even after another little kid another day spilled purple Kool-Aid all over the Apostle Paul, he just kept using it because it's hard to tell the Bible stories without Paul in most of them. He said, what he realized as an adult is that she was teaching them a lesson. He said, I don't even think she realized she was teaching them. Is that the people of God often live our lives taped up and stained by Kool-Aid. And the difficulties of life and our calling from God is not, I'm going to help you be perfect and never have any problems and life will be simple and easy. But my calling on you is to let me shape you into my image, even in the difficulties and the struggles. And Jesus escapes death in this instance, but 30-some years later, that same power of evil will take his life. He will give his life 
so that evil can be once and for all conquered. That's our faith and that's our hope. And what fascinates me about this story is that we get to that place, we get to that, that point of, the, of Jesus doing what he comes to do. What gets the ball rolling is coming out of Egypt. No one knows exactly how long Matthew or uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus are in Egypt. Speculation is maybe a year. I get the feeling that they're there long enough to sort of settle in and feel comfortable there and feel like this is our new home, so much so that it takes another dream to sort of bring them out of that. Because it, Egypt represents escape for Joseph and Mary. And not just escape from the threat of Herod, but also, I think, the escape from the judgment of the people of Nazareth. I mean, you see how hard it was for Joseph to believe what's happened with Mary. Imagine how difficult it is for the people of Nazareth to believe that. And when they go back there, there is going to be, they know there's going to be, they're going to get looks, they're going to be whispers. There are going to be comments. And there is a way, sense in which staying in Egypt is easier for them. They don't have to face all of that. Nobody in Egypt really cares about what happened in Nazareth. They get a clean slate, start over. Nobody knows. And they can just be away from all of that. And I almost wonder this conversation between Joseph and Mary. Joseph, after a while, says, you know, Mary, this is actually working out pretty well for us. I got a good job. We've made some new friends. We've got a nice place to live. Maybe we should just stay here. We don't have to face all that stuff. And then he has a dream. And up out of Egypt is the calling. No, Israel doesn't really want to leave Egypt either. They cry out to God, save us. But when God comes to and sends Moses to rescue them out of, out of Egypt, all they do is whine and complain about it. No, Moses comes and says, all right, we're going to get you out of this. I'll go talk to the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh makes their lives harder. And they say, why did you just, just leave us alone? We're fine here. They get into the desert after they escape. And what's their, what's their complaint? We were better off in Egypt. I couldn't help but think as a pondering, I couldn't help but think of that Keith Green song, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt, where it's warm and secure. You know, you're sorry you bought a one-way ticket. Now you're not sure. There's this, there's this sense in all of us that we get comfortable where we are. And Egypt represents security for us when we're contemplating or when we feel called to leave it. Egypt is refuge. Egypt is security. Egypt is rescue. Egypt is life-giving. But Egypt is always intended to be temporary. Even the way Matthew inserts this prophecy into the story, Someone pointed out to me that it, it's, it seems to not make sense that Matthew, the way Matthew uses it, because he tells us in the, about the first dream. 
And Joseph has this dream, and God says, There's Herod's coming after. The angel says, Herod's coming to get you, so get up and take the, take the child and your wife and Mary to Egypt. And says, This was to fulfill, fulfill the prophecy out of Egypt I called my son. But he hasn't even come back from Egypt yet. I would have thought that'd make a lot more sense if he used that with the dream when they're in Egypt to come back to Israel. And then they come back to Israel, and he says, now that fulfills the prophecy out of Egypt I called my son. And it makes me wonder if the reason Matthew places it in the earlier dream before they've even gone to Egypt is just to remind all of us that Egypt is temporary. From the very beginning, from the moment God says go to Egypt, the intention is to come out of Egypt, to come back. The trip is always about the return trip. It was from the beginning. And there's nothing wrong with Egypt. Egypt is rescue. Egypt is wonderful for Mary and Joseph and Jesus. It's exactly what they need. It's just intended to be temporary. I also find it fascinating that the Egypt, it's temporary because Egypt is not intended to be the hub of where God establishes his kingdom. It's about Canaan. It was always about Canaan. It was always about God bringing his people into the land of Canaan. That's why when Sarah dies and nomads are not allowed to own property in Canaan, Abraham pays a high sum to buy a little cave in which to bury his wife. But that's sort of like God planting a flag in Canaan and saying, we're coming back here. And Jacob and Joseph surely understand that when they go to Egypt in the end of Genesis and they both say to their children, don't bury my bones here. Take us back to Canaan because that's where we're supposed to be. What's interesting is that God doesn't choose a cultural center as the hub of his kingdom. It's not Nineveh, it's not Babylon, it's not... It's not Susa in Persia. It's not in Egypt. It's in this, this insignificant place that nobody really thinks that much about. And it makes me wonder if that isn't because God understands how easily we get fascinated and focus on a place instead of on him. And he wants us to focus not on the place but on the one who's going to come and fill the place. And that's not to feed God's ego. That's to remind us and to turn our attention to the one who is the life-giving source for all of us and for the whole world. And it really is for the whole world. It's always been about the whole world. It's easy to forget that. One of the reasons why we can't allow, allow ourselves to, to, get, to, to, to choose comfort over the calling of God is because when we choose that, when we choose to stay in Egypt where it's easy and safe and everything is just exactly the way we want it to be and we don't want to hear about the challenge of going out of Egypt, it's not just about our lives, it's about others. It's not coming out of Egypt just for Joseph and Mary and Jesus. It's about what Jesus is going to do for the whole world. 
And Chrysostom says the Gospels, Matthew's trying to help us understand that because he talks about the wise men coming out of Persia and Jesus going in and out of Egypt. And he says it indicates to us that the Gospel from the beginning has always been about all the nations, all the world. They're representative of that. And it's easy to forget that. See, the plans of God, God calling us out of Egypt, is always about more than we can dream or imagine in our own lives and in the lives of others. It's always deeper. It's always wider. It's always higher. It's always longer. It's always more than what we can imagine. And I think one of the reasons we get stuck in where we are and are hesitant to step out and to leave our Egypt is because we have lost sight of the bigness of God for us and for others. He wants so much more for us than we could ever want for ourselves. His plans are always bigger for us than our plans for ourselves. God doesn't bring Israel out of Egypt just to bring them out of Egypt. He brings them out of Egypt to take them into the promised land where they could flourish and where they can be his image bearers to the rest of the world. It's not about coming, getting out of Egypt. It's about life after getting out of Egypt. And the question that you and I have to continually ask ourselves is do we believe that God can accomplish his purposes in the world? And do we want to be a part of that? When Herod is doing what he's doing, when Jesus is stuck in Egypt, it feels like it's not going to happen. But God is always working. I love the fact that when the wise men show up to, to greet Jesus, they bring gifts. I'm convinced that one of the reasons they bring gifts is that God uses that to fund the trip to Egypt and back. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh are not just nice things to look at and things to, the aroma to smell. They're valuable. And it seems to me that there's just a little symbol in that, that God says, I can take care of that detail. Don't worry about it. And I'm the God who takes care of that detail. I'm the God who can take care of the details in your life. Will you trust me? When we feel when we're embracing comfort and ease and security, will we trust God when he calls us out of that? And when we're facing difficult things and struggles, will we trust God in that? Can we believe that God is big enough and good enough to do more than we could dream or imagine? I have no idea what you might say right now is your Egypt. Something good? A blessing? A gift? Something wonderful that God has done in your life? Whatever that may be, 
I am convinced that God is always calling us to more. Will we trust him? Father, thank you so much that you want more for us than we want for ourselves. Give us grace, courage, vision, whatever it is we need to step out, to leave behind, and to follow you. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.